0: On the one hand, we've got some sunny economic news from the Labor Department. On the other, trade policies that are a big unknown. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And on Friday, we learned that the economy added 223,000 jobs in May, with unemployment falling to 3.8%, the lowest in 18 years. The president also tweeted about the report before it came out, though without specifics. That is definitely not how things are usually done, as the data can move markets. But that's not the only thing that markets and the people who think about economics are focused on right now. Because American trade policies are in the middle of some big changes. The president is imposing some pretty steep tariffs on three of our biggest trading partners, the European Union, Canada, and Mexico. Needless to say, they're not thrilled. And we are back in retaliatory tit-for-tat mode. To talk about all this, we called up Julie Neiman, Executive Vice President at Smith Moore & Company in St. Louis. Welcome.
1: My pleasure.
0: How would you describe the administration's trade policy right now?
1: Well, for starters, it isn't a trade policy. What Mm -hmm. it is is a steady policy of throwing stink bombs into rooms, having the room clear out, and then saying, okay, let's sit down and talk. So what we're faced with now is the probability of a really bad trade war. We do need to get fair trade. There's a lot of stuff that has to be negotiated, but it's called negotiation, not bullying.
0: Well, when we think about what the administration is doing here, um, do, do they have any argument that, you know, these are tough negotiations and they're trying to get better deals?
1: This is not negotiating. Hmm. This is demanding and taking it on one side. You're opening with a fight as opposed to a negotiation negotiations take place behind closed doors. You don't just throw everything out and start all over again. We basically have lost our credibility. We're not considered to be a steady ally. We're not considered to be trustworthy backing up with our word. So we're being treated with a high degree of well-earned suspicion by virtually all of our trading partners.
0: If you are, um, you know, a company that relies on imports or if you are a company that exports stuff, what are you doing right now?
1: what is happening, and this is what any good manufacturer is going to do, start increasing prices now. Uh, you still have fairly good demand out there in the United States. You know that your prices are going to go up, so you're going to have to start taking a look at your profit margins. And price increases are already happening. At the beginning of the year, steel was trading at $651 a ton. Now it's up to $886. Aluminum, $0.10 cents a pound. It's $0.21.5 cents now. Will the consumer immediately feel it? Probably not. You know, a penny here, a penny there, But longer term, namely next year, is when it's really going to have an impact on prices.
0: Well, you're in a steel town. You're in St. Louis. Um, What's the mood?
1: Everybody over at uh, Granite City Steel is positively ecstatic. It means they're going to be having longer working hours, much more production. But we also have thousands of metal-bending jobs in this town, and they are very concerned. You're going to see slower production. Uh, You're not going to see expansion plans that companies were planning on. Uh, Everything is going to be put on hold until they see where this goes.
0: You know, we are in this moment where, on Friday, we got a really good-looking jobs report. There has been, I would say, in the past year, sort of this dichotomy where the administration says one thing, but markets kind of ignore it. Can they continue to do that?
1: New employment is actually going to probably slow down. In fact, next year, you're probably going to see about a quarter of a million fewer jobs posted out there just because of changes in trade. When you don't have high numbers of people going to work, you're going to have a slowdown in consumption. And it's all about consumption in the American economy. Julie
0: Eamon, Executive Vice President at Smith Moore, talking to us from St. Louis. Thank you so much. You bet. And if you have questions about tariffs and trade, just go to Marketplace.org. We've got answers. If you've watched any TV lately, you've probably seen ads for the World Cup. It starts in Russia on June 14th. Visitors and viewers from around the world will watch, and FIFA, the group that runs international soccer, is supposed to make sure the World Cup keeps up certain standards. That includes zero tolerance for discrimination based on sexual orientation. And that's come up a lot because of Russia's gay propaganda law, which many see as a ban on promoting or acknowledging LGBT rights and culture. To understand how FIFA, Russia, and yes, those big money World Cup sponsors interact to make the rules, we have Yuval Weber, a fellow at the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: I want to start with some basics. You know, when FIFA puts on a big event like the World Cup, um, who makes the rules? Are they abiding by country law? Is it their own sort of principality? What happens?
2: One of the interesting features about uh, the, the FIFA World Cup as well as the Olympics is that these organizations have something really valuable and they're able to get the host countries to suspend their own laws in order to get these events. So, for instance, Russia usually has a pretty strict migration law. You can't go there without a visa. But FIFA is able, and the Winter Olympics when it was in Sochi a few years ago, was able to get Russia to suspend those laws for the people who were attending. So, right now, if you want to go to the world cup in russia ordinarily you would need a visa to go to the country but if you have a ticket that is your visa um wow. fifa and the world cup can also get countries to suspend tax laws so that fifa doesn't pay uh, local taxes then get them to suspend aspects of labor law so that you know the stadiums get built so one of the sort of interesting things about sort of fifa and sovereignty and globalization is that this is a private organization that can actually dictate to sovereign countries what their laws will be for the duration of these events.
0: They could have presumably then suspended Russia's uh, anti-gay propaganda law. They didn't do that.
2: What it seems from the public statements on the Russian side and on the FIFA side is that Russia sort of went with, all guests will be treated well. Um, So instead of saying, you know, gay tourists or gay sort of uh, visitors to the event will be given special protection because of this anti-gay law, Uh, Russia went with the line that all people who come to Russia for this event will be protected equally. And Russia has said numerous times, because not just against, you know, gay and lesbian visitors, but also there's been a lot of problems with racism in Russian soccer. So people who have been on the receiving end of discrimination in Russia have been told they won't be protected because of those aspects of their identity or those aspects of their, you know, physical makeup, But they will be protected as foreign tourists. And it's the foreign tourists who will get protected um, regardless of anything else.
0: So if you're listening to this and you're planning to go to the games or you're thinking about it, uh, what can visitors expect?
2: They can probably expect uh, policemen pretty much like every 50 feet. And Russia and their policymakers understand they don't have a very good reputation abroad. So one of the things that they do whenever visitors do come whether it's like you know conference for political scientists uh, like myself or whether it's like a big international event they want to make sure that nothing goes wrong. So what visitors can expect is um super peppy friendly volunteers who speak English at all the airports, railway stations, all the you know the main tourist areas and policemen everywhere, riot police everywhere, the army everywhere. What the Russian government has done is that they have contacted all the sort of hooligan leaders, you know, fan supporter group leaders in all the cities of Russia, uh, have brought them in for meetings, have told them in no uncertain terms that you will not be bothering all these foreign guests who are coming. You will not be fighting. You'll be not doing this, that, or the other. And that is, in a way, to make sure that all the headlines will be about the tournament.
0: We're talking to you in part because the World Cup is a multi-billion dollar event. When we think about corporate sponsors um, and how they position themselves here, can they use their money to influence what happens and sort of who is welcome at an event?
2: Yeah, it is one of the sort of the signal truths of our world that private companies have a lot of money and they can dictate quite a lot to, uh, to sovereign governments. And what we've seen in terms of all the issues surrounding Russia is that more or less, the corporate sponsors who are participating in this, they want to make sure that the Russia aspect of this is probably de-emphasized and that people focus in on the World Cup. They focus in on, you know, Leo Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, like all the big stars um, who are popular across the world and de-emphasize the local host. Uh, This is probably in contrast to when the World Cup was held in South Africa in which uh, all the corporate sponsors... You know, went in hand over fist in order to associate themselves with this really positive story of South Africa overcoming apartheid in order to hold this like big international um, event. And so in that sense, we can see the both the positive and negative aspects of globalization. FIFA can put on effectively the same event everywhere. Sometimes those stories that come with those events are positive, like when it was in South Africa. In the, and also because FIFA is, by its design, one of the most deeply corrupt organizations on earth, sometimes those tournaments come with perhaps less positive stories. Uh, like in Russia, in which there was allegations of vote buying, plus Russia's you know, general foreign policy struggles with the West. And then as well, the next one coming up in Qatar, in which the, the, the treatment of migrant workers has just been totally abysmal. So that's what FIFA is trying to do. Is to make sure that when the story is positive, they emphasize that. When the story is negative, you'll see a lot of the, you know, the the soccer stars.
0: So about corporate sponsors, you know, can they can they vote with their dollars? I mean, McDonald's has pushed back about Qatar. But what can corporate sponsors do here if they want to?
2: Well, corporate sponsors can can choose not to to sponsor these uh, these events. And what we've seen is that. Uh, particularly with the with the Russia World Cup, there hasn't been a lot of you know the heavy duty sponsorship. There's been a few of the companies that are still there, like let's say McDonald's and Budweiser. But in general, the Western companies, particularly when it comes to you know the geopolitical risk associated with Russia and the reputational risk associated with FIFA itself, these are companies that are being replaced by local Russian, Chinese, and Middle Eastern companies. The big sponsors that have come in, have been Gazprom, the the Russian natural gas giant, uh, yep. Qatar Airways, which is the main sponsor of the, the forthcoming one, and a few Chinese companies. The countries that have a lot of money but seek to, you know, gain the global stage, seek to burnish their own soft power, that's essentially the people who are uh, aligning themselves most closely with this particular World Cup.
0: Yuval Weber, thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me on.
0: This show has spent a lot of time reporting in Puerto Rico since Hurricane Maria, and one open question has been how many people died as a result of the storm. This week, Harvard published a study in the New England Journal of Medicine saying the number is more than 4,600 people. That's 70 times higher than official estimates. Here to put this into context, we have Edwin Melendez, director of the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at City University of New York. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. So you're a social scientist. We've got these numbers now from Harvard. Um, What do they tell us about kind of what we didn't know was happening on the
3: island? This is on the high end of the estimates. And the School of Public Health at Harvard is very prestigious. The the New England Journal is actually the top of the field. So we have to take this study very seriously. And though we're still waiting for uh, the so-called forensic study by the government, Uh, What this study, along with others, indicate is that the head count is much higher than anyone anticipated.
0: You know, one of the things that keeps coming up when we think about Puerto Rico now and in the future is just numbers. Yes. And how much starts with getting accurate counts of things. If you're on the mainland, can you have any certainty that the island's government is counting correctly right now?
3: Unfortunately, not all the surveys that are conducted in the U.S. are conducted down in Puerto Rico. That's one area where the federal government can intervene. For example, there is no accounting of of the cost of transportation in Puerto Rico. It's private information. There is a monopoly. And those are things that should be public. It's public data. And you go down the line, whether it's consumer uh, information, where there is government expenditures, and there are too many areas that are lacking uh, that data collection.
0: You know, there are, I guess we could say, multiple entities in charge of Puerto Rico right Right, now. We have the Fiscal Oversight Board that was created by Congress. We have the governor. Um, When you look at these questions of data and money, who do you see as in charge right now?
3: Well, actually, it's a shared government, okay? And it has to be like that. The ultimate uh, authority and responsibility lies on Congress. You know, Puerto Rico is a territory. They don't have sovereign powers to uh, change uh, some of the laws that Congress enacts, and therefore it has to be uh, shared. And the local government has certain latitude. Uh, the decision-making in Puerto Rico is too much top-down. I think we need to encourage more uh, grassroots participation, and empowering communities to solve their own problems. Uh, otherwise, we're going to continue seeing what's happening. You know, people are migrating out of the island. Uh, there is a lot of, you know, increased poverty. It's more isolated communities in the, up in the hills. Uh, and those are the areas, for example, that are still lacking electricity in many, in many parts of, of the island.
0: A number like this from the Harvard study, even if this is on the high end of the estimate, what does this do um, to the kind of trust that's necessary for rebuilding?
3: Well, I mean, the problem is that to begin with, the number of that were undercounted, right? And I hope that now after that shock, people are more aware of this and whether the local authorities or the federal government are taking a more proactive role in planning for the next storm season. Uh, I think the consciousness of people, for example, there, a lot of attitudes have changed, Right. Before, people were very skeptical about uh, solar energy and water filters and, and, you know, you name it. They were really, you know, why do we need that for? Now, when you talk to people, it's exactly the opposite. I think increasing transparency will bring increased accountability, and I think it's all for good.
0: When you think about where recovery is right now and that we're heading into this hurricane season, what do you worry about the most
3: Well, I mean, I worry that the federal aid took a a little bit of time to get there. Uh, Even uh, troops on the ground took a while to get there. Uh, The local response was also problematic. Uh, To this date, I haven't seen a comprehensive uh, preparedness plan. I know one was commissioned. It's sort of a secret. No one knows. But it's certainly not being published or revealed. There's no public comment period. So if there is a plan going on, it's certainly not evident to people who uh, worry about that, you know, the community leadership and the elected officials and so many other people.
0: Edwin Melendez, director of the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at the City University of New York. Thank you very much.
3: Thanks for the invitation.
0: Stay with Puerto Rico Now. The island is still without a reliable electrical grid, though some people have turned to solar power. One problem is President Trump's tariffs on solar panels could be hurting some efforts to help islanders, like the work being done by an organization in West Virginia. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Glennis Board has our
4: story. Far from the ocean, after driving hours on narrow, winding mountain roads, There's a rural community in central Puerto Rico called Tetuantres. Eight months after Hurricane Maria, families here are still recovering from the disaster. We didn't think it was going to be so big. It took everything, left us with nothing. That's Ana Molina Santiago. She and her husband run a Pentecostal church in Tetuan out of their home and for years they've also cared for adults with special needs And now their home is really full. After Hurricane George 20 years ago, their daughter had to move in with them. Now hurricanes Irma and Maria have forced their granddaughter and great-grandkids to move in as well. Living in a house with so many people has not been easy uh, sacrificio. My husband sacrificed and got a generator so
5: that the children sleep okay and aren't too hot. The mosquitoes are relentless. The big sacrifice is the cost of the gasoline.
4: A number of areas in Puerto Rico are still without electricity, and government officials in the nearby town of Utuado say there are places in this region where power may never be restored. One West Virginia businessman is trying to bring light to these island families. So this will give you about five hours of lighting. Rustin Seaman is president of New Vision Renewable Energy. A pastor in his small town of Philippi, West Virginia, he's come to Puerto Rico to carry on what he calls a West Virginian tradition of taking light into dark places. But instead of coal, he's using sunlight.
1: That's our product.
4: In the back of a church in Utuado, he shows me a solar-powered light his organization developed, one bright enough to illuminate a room. It's a little bigger than a shoebox made with recycled political signs, of all things. It gives enough light to the whole house so that families can be productive at least a few hours after the sun goes down. Seaman partners with local entrepreneurs in affected regions like Puerto Rico In the last four years, his nonprofit has equipped rural, energy-deprived communities in about 40 countries with 3,900 solar light kits and the skills to maintain them. What we want to do is end up providing kits of supplies, empowering people to do some of the assembly work in their own neighborhood, and that'll be a good day. Kits include casings, LEDs, batteries, and solar panels. Back in West Virginia, groups like these fourth graders at Philippi Elementary School assemble the casings. Sierra Crosston is among the students, fitting the casings with reflective materials and LEDs. Then, the final touch, students sign each light and include personal notes. We are very
1: joyful that we got to help you and your family in Puerto Rico. I hope
4: the solar light work and you enjoy them. Seaman says moments like these create purpose in the lives of his community. That purpose, he says, fosters mental health in places like West Virginia and Puerto Rico, where poor economy and natural disaster give way to some harsh realities. But while he works to develop stronger communities around the world as per his mission, he hasn't developed a highly lucrative business model with these lights. Each costs about $110. He relies on donations to cover the cost of batteries and solar panels. So it came as a shock when he discovered the panels were 30 percent more expensive in light of the Trump administration's new tariffs. We should be receiving incentives
6: because we're trying to help people that are in need of assistance. When they do a big global tariff, they don't think about the consequence to a problem like Puerto Rico.
4: About 170 lights are on their way to Puerto Rico. Local partners on the island say the lights will go to people still trying to recover, as well as those preparing for this year's hurricane season. In West Virginia, I'm Glennis Board for Marketplace.
0: And you can check out all our Puerto Rico coverage. Go to Marketplace.org and search for Economics of Disaster. It's intern season. Summer internships have become a rite of passage and they can be hard to navigate. What are the rules? How do you know if an internship is worth it? Or what about if you're the one hiring an intern? To break it all down, we have Allison Green, who writes the blog Ask a Manager and joins us every month to talk about life at work. Welcome.
7: Thanks for having me.
0: All right, we got a ton of internship-related questions, uh, obviously, tis the season. Uh, Our first question comes from Dan DeBrito, writing from Corvallis, Oregon. We've actually done a lot of reporting in Corvallis. Um, He says his child got an internship at a local college, but that the professor who's supposed to manage the internship is totally absent. He placed Dan's kid in an off-site lab with six grad students, no coaching, no specific goals. And he's wondering if the professor is just checking a box of his grant that says he's got to provide education for low-income high school students. Um, So Dan basically wants to know what he can do about this manager so that his kid has a better internship experience. Um, There seem to be multiple layers here, Allison. So, you know, if you got this as a letter, how, how
7: would you respond? What do you think? Well, the first thing is Dan should not step in. And contact the professor himself, which is a thing that parents are sometimes tempted to do, but it'll look really bad and it's undermining to the kid. Uh, But what you can do as a parent is you can talk to your kid about what they can do. So if you're an intern and you've got an absentee manager and no one is giving you any work, it is reasonable to raise that. You can acknowledge that you know your manager is busy, but you've been left without any guidance or work for a while, and say that you really want to ensure that your time there is useful to both of you, and ask about getting more to do, maybe even ask if there's someone else there who could use you. Now, if your boss isn't responsive to that, then it's okay to take the initiative and talk to other people there and offer your help. That said, some internships do end up going like this. Sometimes managers just aren't prepared for the amount of work that it will take to manage interns well, or they just get pulled away into something else that they didn't anticipate. And the intern ends up having a not great experience. If you got your internship through school, Sometimes there's someone at the school who can help, but other times you just need to kind of learn what you can from the experience, even if it's not what you were hoping it would be. And fortunately, internships are usually pretty short.
0: Yeah, this actually sort of raises a question for me in terms of structured internships versus unstructured ones. Um, If you are thinking of interning somewhere, like what can you ask and and how can you ask it to figure out, you know, what you're going to get out of an internship?
7: Yeah, I think a lot of times managers take on interns because it sounds vaguely like a good idea, oh, someone to to help that you can delegate work to, without really considering it's a real-time investment to train and adequately supervise someone. And so they get the intern there and the work that they've had planned to take up the whole summer ends up taking up like two weeks and, and then they have nothing else for the person. So it is really smart as an intern when you're interviewing to ask things like what sorts of projects you'll be working on, what previous interns have accomplished, what would make the internship a success by the end of the summer, what what do they hope you will have accomplished. And sometimes you'll ask those questions and get blank looks and, and sort of vague answers. So that if, if that happens, that is a, a hint that this might not have a lot of structure.
0: Yeah, that brings us to a, a very important topic, the idea that internships are not equally accessible to everyone. Not everyone can afford to take an unpaid internship. Some internships are not paid or they're underpaid. At the same time, a lot of jobs ask for experience that you can only get in an internship, which kind of puts people in a catch-22. We got an email from an anonymous listener in California who basically said, look, how can I escape the you need experience to have a job but can't find a job to give me experience circle? Uh, How do you make that calculation, sort of internship versus paying job?
7: Yeah, it's true that there are big problems with unpaid internships and not everyone has equal access to them. A lot of internships do pay though, so it's worth looking for those. Or if unpaid internships are the norm in your field, try looking for one that's part-time, like only a day or two a week so that you can supplement it with paying work the rest of the time. But I mean, it's, it's certainly true that internships do have a big advantage in that they can give you the chance to get your foot in the door in the field you want to work in. So. If you can intern, it's smart to do it, but you can also look for other ways to get the experience an employer is looking for, like volunteering a few hours a week or organizing a project on campus or through a class. But also I really wanna stress that for students and new grads, any kind of work experience is helpful. So people who can't afford to intern shouldn't worry that it's the kiss of death for their careers because lots and lots of people don't do internships and end up just fine.
0: We got a somewhat related question from Ashley Montgomery in D.C. And this is I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. She says, is there such a thing as being overqualified for an internship and getting turned down? And in that case, she's asking how you can you know, convince a hiring manager to take a chance on someone who's seemingly overqualified
7: you definitely could be overqualified for an internship. And if you are, but you want it anyway, you've got to figure out a way to explain to the employer why you'd be excited about it and why you'd excel at it. Because when someone is overqualified, the worry on the employer side is that you'll be bored or that you'll quickly become dissatisfied with the work they're giving you and you'll start pushing to do other things rather than what they have you there for. So you've got to make a compelling case for why you would be great for a role that on paper you look too experienced for. But also, if you're really overqualified, don't assume that you have to do an internship. I mean, you don't always have to start at the bottom just because you're changing fields. So it's worth talking to people in the industry you want to move into to see if there are other paths into it.
0: We're going to switch over to the other side of things. And we have a great question from a listener who's clearly um, really thought about this. Let's play that.
4: Hi, my name is Samantha Navarro, and I'm calling from Dallas, Texas. I work as one of two photo video specialists at the Dallas Zoo, and I have the pleasure of helping tell stories about our animals and the people who care for them. I am about to have my first intern under me, and I'm wondering what are the number one things you think I should show them and have them do? Thank you.
7: Such a great question. All right, Allison, hit it. What a cool job. Some intern is going to be very lucky, I think, I to be know. able to, to do that. Um, I think the big thing for any anyone supervising an intern is to plan to invest more time than you normally would in training and supervising a new hire. Because interns need more guidance than people normally assume they'll need. So you want to be very hands-on. Don't assume that they know things. Explain what you're doing and why. Spell out things that might seem really obvious to you, You know, like basic workplace norms, like not texting in meetings or what professional dress really means. And encourage them to ask questions too, because a lot of interns are very shy about asking questions unless you make it really clear that you welcome it. And if you approach it that way, It's likely to go well. I think where people run into problems is when they expect interns to come in as relatively independent, self-sufficient employees with well-developed judgment. The whole point of an internship is that they're not there yet, and your job as their manager is to help them get there.
0: Allison Green writes Ask a Manager and joins us to talk about work, life, and where the two meet. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, Lizzie. Allison's got a new book out with all sorts of good advice. You can check it out at Marketplace.org. I'm going to play two job descriptions for you, and I want you to picture the ideal candidate for the job.
1: Listen closely. Someone with superior analytical skills, including strong ability to identify and solve ambiguous problems, and a willingness to roll up the sleeves and do whatever is necessary to meet goals and deadlines.
0: And here's the second job description. Again, picture who the job should go to.
1: Someone who is flexible and has ability to shift gears quickly between multiple campaigns. They're cool under pressure with a pleasant while professional demeanor, both in the office and when interacting with talent.
0: That first listing uses pretty masculine language. The second, pretty feminine. And those are both real job postings with e-entertainment news. The first is for a director of digital product and the second for a social media editor. And that listing is in a new study that finds social media job postings use pretty gendered language generally skewed toward women. Brooke Erin Duffy co-authored that study. She's an assistant professor at Cornell.
8: Welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You looked at lots of different job descriptions. What is something coded as female read like? How is the language gendered?
8: someone who is, um, in one of our our favorite ads, someone who must be excited to work on administrative tasks. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, so anyone who's ever worked in in an office knows how difficult it is to kind of feign excitement over administrative tasks, but essentially someone who can embody what um, sociologists describe as emotional labor, the terms passion, and enthusiastic, were kind of this persistent refrain across our sample. There was also an emphasis on community building and someone who is caring, sociable, giving, generous. These are traditionally associated with feminine skills. You know, why are these traits things we associate with women anyway? Why, why
0: couldn't you say, oh, passion that's sort of open across the board?
8: Yeah and I I'm you know very careful to point out these are coded as feminine and not anything that I um that there's any natural association. And what was so profound to us is these are you know this is essentially a form of of tech work but there was much less of an emphasis on the social media technical skills and more on these social dimensions on this need to be flexible, this need to perform a particular emotional stance. Can you give me an example of what would be sort of
0: male-coded language that might not show up in, in one of the job
8: descriptions you looked at? Terms that are associated with traditional tech work, so managerial, enterprising, entrepreneurial, leadership...
0: What do the numbers say in terms of what percent uh, of these jobs are, are occupied by women?
8: So for us, the best um, statistic we came across was actually self-reported information on a salary composition site called PayScale. And 70 to 80 percent of social media workers, and that includes editors, specialists, managers, self-identify as female. Compare this to the, the tech sector, which, it's a very young, male-dominated culture.
0: You know, I'm curious whether a, a female-dominated
8: profession in this way, um, is it a bad thing? Is it a good thing? This work tends to be rendered invisible. I mean, by virtue of the fact that it's behind the screens. But this invisibility manifests itself in other ways, most likely um, kind of lower status and lower payment. And think about the status that coders and developers have. They are valorized. They are heavily paid. Where I see it as problematic is thinking about how young women who want to work in tech may be marginalized through the recruitment into these particular fields.
0: When we think about social media in our very Fast paced economy. Wh- what
8: is the role of a social media manager now, anyway? So, there is so much content that is created for the digital economy, the type of content that goes on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and even LinkedIn. And the only reason we come across this content is because social media workers make this content visible. They draw upon strategy to garner likes and favorites and and metrics, and they ensure that content is hyper-visible to us as consumers. But the irony, of course, is that to be good at this job you as the worker are actually rendered invisible. So it's a really interesting binary there. Um, But the content we see, we see it because of the the planning and circulation of social media workers. So let's say you're listening to this and you're a hiring manager
0: or you run a company and you're thinking, you know what, I, I want to put out straightforward language to hire anybody for this job. How can
8: you avoid bias in hiring language? Talk to somebody who specializes in kind of the the gendering of language and ensure that these these coded words aren't so persistent throughout the job ad and also thinking about there's this marginal status associated with being a social media worker. social media is propelling our economy at the the current moment, and so Hiring managers need to recognize how crucial these positions are in ways that we don't tend to think too much about.
0: Brooke, Aaron Duffy is an assistant professor of communications at Cornell University. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was really great to chat. We reached out to E! News. A spokeswoman vehemently denied their language attracts anyone of a specific gender and called the premise of the study absurd. But if you want to see for yourself if there is a difference in job listing language, just go to our website, marketplace.org. Next week, if you go to the movies, you'll see someone with the last name Ocean pulling together a band of skilled criminals for a great big heist.
4: How long did it take you to figure all this out? Five years, eight months, and 12 days. Why do you need to do this? Because it's what I'm good at.
0: That is Debbie Ocean, played by Sandra Bullock, the fictional sister of Danny Ocean, recently played by George Clooney and originated by Frank Sinatra. The clip was from Ocean's 8, which features an all-female all-star cast. One woman behind the movie is Olivia Milch, co-writer and co-producer, I recently sat down with her and asked, what's up with all the remakes?
6: Why can't women have their own
0: original blockbuster?
6: The hope is that we get to a place where there's just a lot of movies being made with female protagonists and female voices. And uh, it's always comforting, I think, to have known entities. I mm. think we as audiences and as consumers of, of art and of media, there is something about that as an entry point.
0: Well, in Hollywood as a business, I mean, the sort of reboot and sequel business has
6: been – Big lately, absolutely, and and I think that the hope is that you're doing justice to the characters and you're doing justice to the story, whether or not your way in may be something that feels a little bit known. What is true and what is new about the version you're telling? Do you think about box office in your creative process? I'm. I'm very new to that element of things so I I don't I to me that all kind of seems like mon- monopoly money I mean I I'm I would imagine perhaps after this experience I will have more of an intimate and personal understanding of that knock on wood but um I was really fortunate to grow up around storytellers that were not I didn't think about commercial viability and commercial success and that wasn't something that was ingrained Your in me. Your father is David Lynch, <laughs> creator of Deadwood, among other things. That guy. But that guy. I think, you know, there, there doesn't have to be that tension between commercial success or commercial viability and great art. And um, and I think some of the best pieces of work that have come out of, of film can kind of live in the middle of that Venn diagram. You also made this movie Dude for Netflix. And I, I want to ask you
0: about something you said on a panel um, that running a set doesn't have to be fear-based. Tell me about that, because obviously in this cultural moment, we're talking about bullying, we're talking about sexism and harassment, and a lot of the meanness Mm -hmm. that is endemic, uh, I guess, to
6: to both of our industries. How do you run a set that's not fear-based? The best version of a set is a community. And to be the, the writer or the director on that set, you really want to make sure that everybody knows why they're there and what story that they're telling. And I think we have this idea of, of sets and of directors where, you know, people are yelling and throwing things and it's crazy, but, oh, that's where the vision comes from. And, and that very well may be true, but that's not who I am and that's not the, that's not what I would want to be a part of necessarily. So there's this thing
0: that is also happening now that I think of sort of as a corporate feminism. And I'm curious whether when you see this big, shiny movie with your name on it, is it enough to say, look, it's the badass women headlining the movie? Do, do we
6: get to a cultural point where maybe we miss the work? I'm always going to be happy when people are talking about feminism. If it's a corporation or, you know, the, the young woman on the street corner selling lemonade. I mean, I'll take it. Um, I think one potential antidote to – the fear that it's being co-opted in some kind of way or the work is being missed is to look at the people who've been doing the work for a long time. And I think that tends to be women of color and the queer community and people who have been at the forefront of these fights for rights. So that's the time when you kind of try to how do I serve those voices? How do I give those voices a platform? How do I hold the door open for those people when when I've been fortunate enough to beca- get into a position where we're getting to tell this story on a really big platform, on a really big scale? And I think that's one of the incredible things about our cast and our crew is that they've been really aware of how potent and powerful representation is in and of itself.
0: When you created Dude, um, tell me if I'm right here,
6: 50% people of color in the cast, 50% women in the crew. That was, yeah, that was our intention. And I think that... When you get a little bit of of control, a little bit of power, um, you want to put your money where your mouth is. You want to try to live your values. Also because you know that it will make the work better. You know, Dude is a a better movie because it looks like the real world.
0: I mean, I walked out of Ocean's 8 like ready to go commit some robberies. Yes! I am curious. How do you want people to walk out of this movie and feel?
6: Empowered. uh, Delighted open to the possibilities of of joy and fun. This is really just a story about women who are excellent at their jobs. They just happen to be criminals. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I do think that there there is something uh, about what women are and aren't allowed to do. And when we're talking about uh, filmmaking and storytelling, women have kind of been left out of the ability to be in a movie that's sort of about fun and fantasy. And they don't necessarily need the like deep, dark, painful – crazy past to justify why they're doing something sometimes women just want to steal <laughs> and sometimes they want to do it with a group of other badass women and make a lot of money and and treat each other well and support each other in the process and um there's a lot of of fun to be had in this experience olivia milch thank you very much thank you for having me really appreciate it
0: The Ocean's 8 gang are fictional, of course, but there are some real-life women who ran some big heists, the infamous Bonnie Parker of Bonnie and Clyde and Ma Barker, who led the bank-robbing Barker gang. And a string of more recent criminals, the Starlet Bandit, the Church Lady Bandit, the Barbie Bandits, we wanted to get a handle on the psychology and reality behind the real women who do this, so we brought in an expert.
5: My name is Christy holt I'm a professor in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Arizona State University. I am the editor of the journal Feminist Criminology, which is the official journal of the American Society of Criminology's division on women and crime.
0: Crime is as old as law, but when it comes to women committing
5: robberies, there's a shorter history. If you go outside of the United States, um, it's something that can be traced as far back as mid-18th century London where you'd find women participating with men in criminal gangs, usually committing crimes like minor thefts, shoplifting, pickpocketing, and occasionally robbery. Um, In the United States, we started to see women getting involved in these types of crimes around the late 19th and early 20th century, which corresponds to a time when their roles in the family began to change from strictly focused inside the home to outside of the home. And along with those legitimate opportunities and responsibilities came more opportunities to commit some of these economically motivated types of crime. Um, So early female shoplifters, for example, um, were found to be offending alone as well as within groups of other women.
0: During the 1920s, some of the first big women heisters hit the scene in the U.S.
5: One of the most interesting examples that I can think of is a case in the United States of a woman named Celia Cooney, who was known as the Bob-Haired Bandit, which of course was the popular hairstyle of the time in the 1920s Prohibition era. And uh, she was a 19-year-old laundress in Brooklyn and along with her husband, Ed, held up a series of grocery stores um, at gunpoint um, over the course of several months in um, the mid-20s. She was pregnant at the time and they used their income from the heist to try and upgrade their lifestyle, their living circumstances. They bought furniture for the new baby, um, but they tended to spend the money as fast as they got it and um, ended up going into more debt, which resulted in more robberies um, to pay for that lifestyle.
0: So we've got the groups of female shoplifters, a couple of infamous husband and wife teams, but the Ocean's 8-style gang of specialists is rare. And not just in the sense that it's a movie and it's fiction, but also in the sense that women tend not to commit crimes together.
5: We do see more women offending either alone or with a romantic partner. Men tending to work with um, other men as opposed to working alone.
0: Both men and women commit robberies out of greed or to enrich their lifestyle, but there is some difference in the motivation behind a robbery, too.
5: Men will often commit this type of crime to address some sort of personal situation that might be related to other types of crimes or illegal activities. And so we could see cases um, that include something like gambling debt, or to deal with an addiction or other personal vices that are not the sorts of things you could go and get a loan for. But for women, um, we tend to see motivations that um, are less about themselves and need as opposed to motivations that are related to others as the reason. So a loved one, a, a child with an illness or other needs like that, they can't take care of through legitimate means.
0: Women robbers are not angels, of course, and there are definitely instances where women match their male peers. In many of these cases, women have been the ones holding the guns and pulling the trigger. And when they do commit robberies, they aren't necessarily less violent, but they do commit fewer robberies.
5: In criminology, we have um, what we refer to as uh, just kind of a known empirical fact, and that is um, something called the gender gap in crime. And so if you look at any time or place, um, whether you're talking about now or in history and in some of these periods that we were talking about earlier, uh, you're almost always going to have men overrepresented. Um, and there are a few exceptions, of course. Prostitution would be one of those. But um, you're going to have men over overrepresented in, in crime um, statistics.
0: According to the FBI, about 7 percent of bank robberies in 2016 were committed by women. And special thanks to Christy Holtfreder for helping us do the numbers on women in crime. And that is it for the show this week. Marketplace Weekend is produced by Eliza Mills, Peter Balanon-Rosen, and Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer. Special thanks this week to Katie Long. Andrew Drew Jostad is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.